0: You're listening to another New Hope Chapel New Hope
1: podcast. podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. I wanted to thank you for listening to this message from our teaching team, and I pray that God uses it to touch your heart. I'm so glad the children um, are with us when we worship together every Sunday morning. Um, we, we attended a church when our kids were little where it was, um, the, the worship took place in this huge auditorium. And um, I remember one time my son Daniel peeking his head in and looking, and the kids were never in the auditorium. They went straight to Sunday school and did classes down the hall. And he said, what goes on in there? <laughs> and I thought, this is not a good way to have my children learn ownership of the church. <laughs> so I'm glad that we do have the children with us. Um, my name is Julie Coleman, and I'm part of a six-member teaching team here at New Hope. We don't have just one person man the platform. There's six of us, and, um, and I'm one of them. And uh, I'm very glad that you're here this morning, glad, glad to um, have you with us. Okay, so we have been doing a series on the book of Philippians, and we're now in chapter 3, um, and it's the uh, idea of the series is living in light of heaven, which is Paul's main point throughout the book of Philippians. So um, we're going to be looking at that. But I, before I start, I want to tell you that, um, I, I don't know if you're a Facebook fan, I love Facebook, mostly because I can, I can take a break from when I'm working at my computer all day and check up on everybody. I'm a stalker. I check everybody's things and find out what my children are up to. Usually I'm looking for grandchildren pictures, whatever. But, and there's a lot of articles that are posted. A lot of them I just pass right on by. But every every article that has a before and after weight loss thing, I read. <laughs> Everyone. Because weight loss has been like the bane of my existence, my entire life, I'm always on a diet, always trying to get that, those extra pounds off. And so I'm always looking for the secret. You know what I mean? The thing. This woman lost 170 pounds. She's just one example. There's a gazillion online. If you just Google before and after weight loss, you'll see more pictures than you ever even want to look at. But, and they always have the person's story. But what I'm looking for is the secret. How did she lose the weight? What was the magic thing that helped her to drop 170 pounds? I don't want to hear diet and exercise. <laughs> Isn't there like a pill we can take or a prayer we can pray or something? And so I'm looking for that secret thing. That it, and usually, you're right, Scott, it comes down to diet and exercise. It's not rocket science. And, you know, my doctor's always telling me, this is how you lose weight. And I'm like, this is not an ignorance thing. Believe me, I know how to lose weight. <laughs> What I look for is the motivation and the, you know, how, how but anyway, I'm looking for that one secret thing. Well, we've been working through Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, Um, and it really today, my passage, is really the capstone to me of the whole book, and it's the thing, it's the secret, it's the it's the main ingredient that we need to have if we're going to be able to live out what, what we think our faith is. Um, because we all want to be winning Christians. We all want to be the people that when we get to heaven, the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't we? I do. I dream of God saying that to me. Not a lot of hope for it, but I dream it. And so we, but we have these good intentions and we make our resolutions and we decide we're going to, from now on, every morning, I'm going to get up an hour early and do my devotions and I'll have a prayer list. I'll check off when he answers them. I'm going to, you know, and we, we have these ideas of what it would be to be victorious Christians. But the resolutions, the, they, they, I don't know about you, I'm really bad at, I'm good at making them, but I'm really bad at fulfilling them. You know, after a while, I just fall off the wagon. And so what is the secret? How can we be more like Paul and less like Julie Coleman? And so we we look at, you know, we're, we're short of the goal. How do we meet the goal? I think today's passage gives us the secret. And I believe in it so strongly. I'm very excited about talking to you this morning. As a matter of fact, when Steve and I were kind of mapping out Philippians and trying to figure out, you know, who's going to speak on what and that kind of thing and dividing up the passages, I said, I don't care what you assign me to, but I want 3, 15 to 22. That's the one I want because I know it's the capstone and, and has that, that idea, that secret. So let's take a look at this passage. We're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please open to them because I, you want to be able to refer to it as we go along um, because this won't be on the screen forever. Okay, Philippians 3. Let us therefore... As many as are perfect, and that word is kind of a maturity, not, you know, without fault, (laughs) have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ." whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The secret's in there. Let's pray and ask God to show it to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that you have given us everything we need to live lives in Jesus Christ, consistent with our faith. We thank you for the message that's in this little section of Paul's letter. Please help us, God. Give us spiritual eyes with your Holy Spirit to understand these things. Please keep me out of the way and let the power of your word pierce hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's the secret? For our citizenship is in heaven. That's it, folks. I could just sit down right now, but I want to unpack that for you a little bit. Because that's what it is. We're citizens of heaven. And when we live out that reality, we're going to be aligned with God's purpose for us in our lives. So what does it mean to think and live as a citizen of heaven? Well, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to look at this in light of how the Philippians would have heard it in the first century, get that historical context. And then we're going to take that principle that he was teaching and lift it up and put it down in the 21st century so that we can apply it to our lives today. So that's where we're headed. Okay, so what did Paul's words, we are citizens of heaven, what would that have meant to his original audience? Well, citizenship to a Philippian was something special. I don't know if you remember, but way back when I introduced the book in February, you might remember that many of the residents in Philippi were actually Roman citizens. They were retired military, and um, they were awarded land in the city of Philippi as kind of their retirement package for their service and for things that they had done, a little bit, a lot, well, a little bit like Annapolis, where you get a lot of um, retirees that you know went to the Naval Academy and, and uh, served as officers in the Navy or Marines, and they end up drifting back here and retiring here in Annapolis because they've got that strong um, tie to the Naval Academy, and it, it makes for a strong naval presence here and sentiment in the city. Well, the Philippians were very proud of their status as a Roman colony, and they conducted themselves in a way that, uh, with that in mind, they lived their lives in light of their place and rights within the Roman Empire as Roman citizens, even though they weren't um, in Rome proper. (laughs) Um, There was an official register of all the citizens that were. People who had citizenship in Rome. And that was called a palatuma, and it was um, kept in Rome, the mother city. But as citizens of a Roman and a Roman colony, uh, people were expected to promote the interests of their empire and maintain its dignity. Don't, don't embarrass your country while you're there in this outpost, right? They had that kind of idea. Um, so they would have gotten the meaning of Paul's metaphor here. They would, they're living in a colony, it's an outpost. And they're representative of where their true sentiments lie. So um, they uh, represented the interests of their homeland and would lead a life worthy of that association. Reminded me a little bit of an incident that happened, I think it was 2006, with a, a singing group called the Dixie Chicks. Remember these girls? Immensely popular in country music for a time. And then they went over to London on a tour... And during the concert, one of the lead singers made a disparaging remark about the president. Um, I think she forgot who her fan base was. Um, And so what happened was there was this outrage back in the homeland, United States, that she would say, you know, disparaging things about the the leader of our country. Because, and and the thing is, I thought, well, why did everybody everybody have such a reaction about it? Because there's always been free speech with musicians, and and, and anybody who uh, even had a a problem with them saying things about the president, they, they would never say they shouldn't have free speech. So what was the issue? Well, the issue was they weren't in the United States when they were making their comments. They were on foreign soil. They were representing the United States, and people didn't like how we were being represented. They fell so fast from the top of the charts down to oblivion. Uh, it was really interesting to, to read the history. They had a, at the, the the day that, that she made that uh, remark about the president, her their single was number ten on the hit charts. The next week, it was forties, and the following week wasn't on the charts at all. Um, there were a lot, it was a huge. Um, they lost a lot of their sponsors, Lipton, uh, their association with the Red Cross. Um, and uh, in one uh, poll by uh, an Atlantic radio station, 78% of listeners who participated responded, if I could, I'd return my CDs. So it was a huge outcry. And they never did regain their popularity. They still, they're still um, trying. But they disassociated themselves from country music because they'd lost that fan base completely. And they started th- trying to fit in with um, popular Um, music, but it just never really worked out for them. They faded into oblivion, really. Because we didn't want, or or anybody that that heard those remarks, on foreign soil, our country being represented in that way. So there's a sense of representation when you're a citizen and you're on foreign soil. And that's kind of the idea, I think, that the Philippians would have gotten as they looked at that. That word, Polotuma. It's translated in verse 15 as citizenship, which is a noun. It's used one other time by Paul in this letter. And that's all the way back in verse 127 at the beginning of his letter. And he says this. It's a verb form this time. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct yourselves is polituma. Or politumao, if it was a Greek. But that idea of living out your citizenship Um, that appropriate action to who you are. Paul gets very specific on this. So really, what does that mean then? Live it out. Well, I think it starts with, and I think Paul indicates this, it's changing the way we think. We think about who we are, okay? The original word that have this attitude that Paul was talking about there literally means to understand or think, to be minded in a certain way, to regard or savior, a saver. And that attitude is three times in verses 15 and 16, that word attitude. So that's the thing that Paul's talking about in our section today. Have this attitude. And that attitude, that mindset is going to transform us. Now I got uh, some help on this from my friend Bill Smith, another member of the teaching team. He has this thing, he, and I, I wrote it down, Bill, so I won't get it wrong. Be, have, do. That's the order. Be, have, do. So you have to understand who you are and own it, and that will result in action. So it really starts with your perception, what your mind is taking in, right? So you you know something or hear something to be true, and you you just keep repeating over and over. You you say it out loud. You tell it to people you know, and you, you try to get your mind into going past your perception to what you really believe. And then your mind tells your heart what to feel, and out of your heart comes your actions. So it's about what you're setting your mind on. It's a little bit like, and Bill uses this example, programming a computer. Our perceptions, thought over and over again, become beliefs. And a computer program takes the information and programs the computer. And then the computer responds to the information it's given. Right? Does that make sense? So that's, that's what it sort of is like with the mind and then the heart and then the actions. So what we choose to dwell on with our minds ultimately becomes instruction to our hearts. I made this graphic up all by myself. And from our heart is where our actions originate. Um, and we have lots of scriptural evidence of that. There's two I'll read to you. One in Mark 7, it's Jesus talking. He says, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. And then he, uh, Luke, Jesus says again in Luke chapter 6:45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of evil, evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for the mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So what we feel in our heart, what we believe in our heart, the actions flow from that. So that's the idea in mind. Uh, A good example is a a book I've been reading recently. I do a lot of reading for people that have written novels and want um, recommendations or endorsements or whatever. And so I I was reading this book. I think it's called, I don't remember, something about deliverance, defiance. I don't remember. Anyway, it's a story (laughs) about this abused wife. And so she's in this relationship with her husband, who happens to be a pastor. It's a novel. And anyway, he is physically abusing her. He beats her up all the time. And you, you, you watch the story unfolding, and you say, why does she stay? Why does she take it? Why doesn't she pick up her kids and get out of there? Because this guy is obviously a crazy person. And what are you doing staying with him? But there's a reason she stays, because every time he abuses her, after the incident is over and his, he's calmed down, he goes to her and he says, you're doing this. You're being a terrible wife, and look what you made me do. This is your fault. If you would just be a better wife this wouldn't happen anymore. And so she's taking a class on how to be a better wife and she's praying and asking God to help her. Because in her head, she's been programmed to think, this is my fault. And if I could just be the wife that he wants me to be, then he wouldn't do it anymore. You see what happens here? So what her perception is, which has been fed to her by her husband for many, many years, has become a belief in her heart and out of her heart comes her action to decide to stay even putting her children at risk to this monstrous behavior of his. The brain programs the heart, and the actions follow the heart's instructions. So, And Paul even talks about this in Romans 12 too. He says, be transformed, what? By the renewing of your mind. What you think makes a difference on what your heart is programmed to. And Paul wrote it in Colossians, he said, set your mind on the things above, not on things on earth, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then later he says, Therefore consider, again, think. Think. So what we think has a huge implication for what we believe and what we believe has a huge implication for how we act. So how are we to think? Well, Paul just told us. We have to think like a citizen of heaven because that's what we are. We are citizens of heaven. We believed in Jesus Christ. We're in. And so... Therefore, we have to think like a citizen of heaven would think. Well, the first thing that we need to get straight in our thinking as a citizen of heaven is that our righteousness is not dependent on what we do. You remember last week, Justin took the passage just before this and uh, talked about Paul. And he said, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he starts going through all of his... um, things that would make him, ordinarily, if you're not thinking like a citizen of heaven, thinking in terms of entitlement. Um, He was circumcised on the eighth day. Right on the right day, he got circumcised. He was a a part of the nation of Israel. He's a Jew. He even knew what tribe he was in, Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law with a great zeal for the law. He was a persecutor of the church. Did some murdering to try to keep this movement from happening. He was blameless in keeping every single rule. If anyone had bragging rights, it was Paul. But this is what he says. Well, what happened was he had this sense of entitlement. He was operating under this belief system. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus Christ. Christ appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, struck him blind, and said, Saul, you're persecuting me. And Saul understood all of a sudden that all the righteous things he had done All of his great acts, all of his uh, feathers in his cap were worthless because it was total opposition to what Christ had done in dying on the cross. He understood everything in the light of Jesus Christ. He started thinking like a citizen of heaven. So he wrote, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So part of being a citizen of the kingdom, part of being a citizen of heaven, is to understand this idea. Righteousness comes from a gift of God alone. And it's the first step to thinking like a citizen. So he tells us, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So that's the first thing. Then to further clarify, and sometimes we do this, he gives the opposite of what the right attitude should be. He's given himself and others that think like him as an example. And then the next thing he does is talk about people who are not thinking like citizens of heaven. Um, He calls them the enemies of the cross. They were in opposition. An enemy is somebody who stands in opposition to something. And that's what they were. They were standing in opposition to the cross. So who were these people? He doesn't name the group. You read commentators, everybody has a guess. And I think a lot of them are really wrong. I kept looking, going, what? Did they look back at verse (laughs) 2? Because uh, some people say it was the Stoics. Some people say it was a group called the Antinomians that he's talking about. He doesn't name them, but he does say in verse 2, he says this, the evil workers, the false circumcision. Well, what he referred to as the false circumcision in other places in the Bible was a group called the Judaizers. And Judaizers were a group that were traveling all through Asia Minor and trying to infiltrate the churches and get their heresy to be the thing. And it had a little bit of a ring of truth to it, like most heresies do, and they were affecting greatly some of the um, uh, churches in the area. Uh, Galatians is one that they were affecting strongly, and um, the whole book is written about it. Um, To me, the context and, and what Paul says really seems to indicate this group, but that's just my opinion. But this is what was being taught. They said that in order to be saved, you have to become a Jew. That people that weren't Jews were not going to be saved. Um, as Paul wrote the Ephesians, that's not true because Jesus came and broke down that wall between Jew and Gentile. It says in Ephesians two fourteen sixteen, 16, he said, he made mo- both groups, Ephesians and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall and reconciles them both in one body to God through the cross. So that idea of having become a Jew flew in the face of the cross, enemies of the cross. Another thing they taught was that they mu- you must observe Mosaic law in order to be righteous. So the law didn't go away, according to the Judaizers. It was all part of it. Um, you know, Jesus and good works, right? So you had to follow all the food restrictions. You had to keep religiously all holidays, all observances. The law was still obligatory. But this is what Paul says about that in Galatians. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Their teaching was flying in the face of the cross. Colossians tells us that Jesus took that law with all of its requirements and condemnations and he took it away from us and nailed it to the cross. It says this in Colossians 2.14, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Praise God. He did that. Jesus fulfilled the law, fulfilled its requirements. The other thing that they taught, this group, was that circumcision was a requirement. You could not be saved unless you were circumcised. Well, in Colossians, Paul talks about that again. And he says, in him, Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, we were spiritually circumcised. God put his mark on us, but it's a spiritual mark. It's the Holy Spirit who came to dwell in us, and we are marked as his. It's a guarantee, it's a deposit for the inheritance we're going to get in the future. We are marked, but we're spiritually marked. Circumcision is not a necessity any longer. So everything those Judaizers were teaching had been eliminated by the death of Jesus on the cross. So they were enemies of the cross because they were nullifying the work that had been done there. What they promoted, they were enemies. So what could the Philippians then learn from this contrast? Well, the cross is central to the mindset of a citizen in heaven. A citizen of heaven does not glory in men, does not glory in religious rituals, or in his own achievements. He glories in the cross. Paul wrote that in Galatians 6.14. He said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So, to think like a citizen of heaven, we know, first of all, our righteousness comes from God, not from uh, some sense of uh, um, entitlement. It's not from our accomplishment. We cling to the cross and uh, what it accomplished. And finally, there's a third way of thinking if you're going to think like a citizen of heaven, and that is that we know that what we see is not all there is. We've got an eternal perspective on things. Um, The last thing that Paul mentions in the passage is that we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. A citizen of heaven knows that what we see is not all there is. There's more to come. That already, not yet principle that we talk about all the time in Bible study. There's tremendous power in that future hope. Tremendous power. Um, Hebrews talks about it. Abel, uh, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. They trusted in something beyond what they could see. In uh, Hebrews 11:13 and 16, it says, all of these died in faith, having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They were able to take their vision of eternity and the, the future that God had promised them, and that influenced their actions in the here and now. They were thinking in terms of what they couldn't see. Jesus was even motivated by the hope of the future. It says in Philippi and Hebrews, excuse me, twelve two. Jesus, who for the joy set before him the future, endured the cross, despising the same shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the hope of future helped Jesus, enabled Jesus, on some level, to endure the pain of the cross. Faith is in what we don't see. The Bible tells us very clearly in Romans. We ourselves having the first, fu- first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. But who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. So you see how that idea of that hope in the future strengthens us in the here and now. So Paul wrote this, forgetting what lies behind. Oh, I'm sorry, I have one more verse. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So Paul wrote, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When you're a citizen of heaven, you get that what we see is not all there is. That eternity, the uh, eternal, is just a a huge component of our faith because we're putting our hope in the future. We're putting our hope in God's big picture. And it has a side effect, a, a benefit, when we start thinking like that. That when we start thinking in terms of what's ahead and stop thinking about what's behind, it actually enables us to forgive what's behind. Think about the story of Joseph. My, my, my little boy, when he was three or four years old, was praying with Steve one night and he said, Dear God, this is Joseph. Not the one in the Bible, the other one. <laughs> this is the other one I'm talking about, the one in, in Genesis. And he and his family <clears throat> were, uh, he, he had a, horrendous circumstances happen to him. His brothers took him and sold him off to slavery and forgot all about him. Well, he meets up with his brothers years later. Um, but the whole time you read the story of Joseph, and it's just a wonderful story, re- really remarkable in what happens. He's got the big picture in his head. He's got the eternal thing. He's got the plan God has for his family and his family when they become a nation. He's looking ahead. And so when his brothers come, and they think they're in big trouble because now he's like second in command in Egypt, and here they are. Yeah, remember us? We're the guys who um, sold you into slavery. But this is what Joseph says. He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring out this present result, to preserve many people alive. And then he continues to look at the future from where they are right then. God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land into the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You shall carry my bones up from here. So even on his deathbed, he was looking beyond to what he saw to what God had promised. That's how a citizen of heaven thinks, toward the future and trusting God to carry out the things that he has promised. It's a future orientation. Now, the idea, did Joseph forget? No, he didn't forget. How do you forget when something that bad has been done to you? In the Bible when it talks about I will remember no more, <clears throat> it does not mean that it's blocked from my memory. God still remembers the sins of his, pe- of his people. Um, Hebrews 10, 17 says, Their sins I will remember no more. But then the next line, he clarifies what it means. I will no longer hold their sins against them. You see, you've got this idea. It's not failing to remember. It's that their sins can no longer affect their standing with God. Or influence his attitude toward them. So to forget or to not remember in the Bible means to no longer be influenced or affected by those things. We break the power of the past by living for the future. And that's a great benefit to being kingdom thinkers. <clears throat> Paul's events of the past, they were remembered. But they didn't, they didn't ever change. His life was, was still his life, his former life. But his understanding of those events, they changed. That changed. And when he started thinking like a citizen of heaven, then suddenly it all, the perspective became very clear. So if we look back, we spend a lot of time looking back over our lives, we're shackled by regrets, aren't we? I told my son Joseph the other night, I said, you know, I can't think of a, a moment in time when I was being a parent where some guilt doesn't come in and say, I could have done that better as a mother. And, you know, it, it's just like everything I think about, some school event when I was a kid, oh, I should have done. It's always about regret. And it shackles us, it incapacitates us, that guilt. It's like trying to run a race by looking behind you the whole time you're running. What do you do? You trip, you fall, you miss the finish line. Worse, you even trip, fall, and then the runners that are behind you fall over you, right? You can stumble other people when you are shackled to the past. But when you look to the future, when you're looking as a citizen of heaven and knowing what God has promised, what God is doing now and will continue to do, that stuff becomes almost irrelevant. It's a wonderful thing. So think like a citizen of heaven. So how can all of this then, so what? What? How can all this have an impact on us tomorrow morning when we get up, put our feet to the floor, go to work, start living life again, right? Well, at the beginning of the message, I promised you the secret to successful living, godly living according to the purpose of God for us. I really think it's all about our focus, how we think. You know, when you have a river, if it's allowed to overflow its banks, what you get is... A very placid river, um, not running real big because it's spread out, right? And a lot of swampland. Kind of worthless. But if you take that river and you limit its borders and you give it a focus and force it through a smaller opening, what you get is power that can uh, light up cities and cities. When you get that narrower focus, it's kind of one of those laws of physics where you get something that goes through a small opening like air through a balloon, it, it, it empowers that air. It makes it stronger, right? That's the idea. We're supposed to get focused. Get focused as a citizen of heaven. Think like a citizen that you are. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Start programming your heart with the reality that is yours. And what are those realities that Paul got us? Remember where your righteousness comes from. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to earn it even now as you're living your life with Jesus Christ. It's not a checklist. It's a relationship. The second is that we cling to the cross and its provision for us. And I know you're all doing that because I watched you as we sang those words about Jesus Christ in that last song, Melanie Ladison. It's all about him. It's all about his work. And leave the past behind. Set our sights toward God and what he's going to do in the future. Let your mind inform your heart, and God will use it to transform you, enabling you to do his will.